Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tates Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Today we uh, pick up what can only be labeled as one of the most significant developments in all of history. That's not an overstatement. Of course, our faith is a uh, Christ-centered faith. All that we believe, all our hope, all our trust, all is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Something we fail to appreciate about the Jesus we call Lord is his relative obscurity. His ministry only spanned three years and was relegated to an area about the size of here to Cincinnati. That's about the length of his travels. For someone who claimed to be the Messiah of the world, he was certainly an obscure Messiah. He was not prestigiously educated, certainly had no wealth, uh, pushed back on popularity, died a shameful death, and left the world no writings at all. And yet, Jesus and his salvation have taken over the world. How is that possible? Well, from a theological perspective, we would say, Because Jesus is true. He is risen from the dead. He truly is Lord and Savior of all. His movement cannot fail. And this is true. But practically speaking, from a practical standpoint, how is it that this obscure life and ministry turned into the centerpiece of human history? What happened? It happened because of what happened in our passage today. That's not an overstatement. Saul of Tarsus. Skeptics and believers alike agree that it is this man who took Jesus and introduced him to the world. Not only, of course, as, it's, as the church's earliest ministry, missionary in his journeys throughout the Roman Empire, planting churches, but more so through his writings that make up nearly half the New Testament canon. It is impossible to overstate the significance of this man. And so all I want to do today, as we come to the moment that changed him and changed the world, all I want to do today is um, marvel at, I guess you could say, the testimony of Saul of Tarsus, more popularly known as Paul. Not just his testimony, but more significantly, the Lord and Savior behind the testimony. Let's, let's watch Saul turn from enemy to missionary 
and then let his story direct our eyes exactly where he would want them fixed upon the Jesus he encountered that fateful day. His story, his testimony unfolds in three ways, and we're going to look at each of them. We're going to see uh, Saul's contention, Saul's conversion, and Saul's commission. So contention, conversion, commission. His hostility against Jesus, his conversion to Jesus, and then his commission uh, to be used by Jesus. Let's start with Saul's contention. If you remember when we left off with Saul, uh, he was going house to house in Jerusalem, uh, searching for any and all followers of Jesus and hauling them off uh, to prison or even execution. And it was because of Saul's persecution uh, that Christianity was dispersed into seemingly obscurity. But Saul is not even content with the Jerusalem persecution. Verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, so burning is his hatred for Christianity, is his hatred for Jesus and his followers, that he now wants permission to track down any scattered remnant of the movement, men and women, it matters not, to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem for prison and or execution. It is impossible to overstate Saul's role as Christianity's earliest enemy. And we do need to pause and just linger there and consider the significance of that from a historical perspective. Historically speaking, there's no debate regarding Saul of Tarsus as a historical figure. Uh, There's a lot of critical scholarship that you'll find out there surrounding Jesus and the writings, um, the gospel writings which came Um, which came later after Saul's epistles. When it comes to the life of Paul and his letters, though, there is very little debate. He is who he is, and we all agree upon it. It's not contested. He was indeed a famous Pharisee and Christianity's greatest enemy, and he did indeed become a follower of Jesus unexpectedly and become Christianity's greatest missionary. That is historically true. And so when you look at this through the lens of history, what you start to realize is this is unheard of. You find this nowhere else. What are we supposed to do with Saul of Tarsus? He presents a massive conundrum for the skeptic. You see, when you study other religious movements, they follow the predictable patterns of growth. The initial followers are always the the close family and friends of the religious founder, along with those um, a part of culture that are susceptible to the message of the founder. And because of this, um, critical historians easily dismiss religious movements as not necessarily true as much as an um, unsurprising social development that came out of that culture. But what are you supposed to do with Paul? 
What are you supposed to do with the great Apostle Paul? How is it possible that the person who introduced Jesus to the world, the persons whose epistles gave the definitive theological expression of the gospel of Jesus, how is it possible that the person who had the greatest influence for Jesus was first the greatest enemy of Jesus? There is only one only one way this is possible, and it is found in what we are about to read. So we've established Saul's contention, and it's significant. Let's now see Saul's conversion. Verse 3. Now, as he went on, away, on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So, what happened to Saul? The risen and exalted King Jesus happened to Saul. This story has echoes of what's called Old Testament theophanies. These significant moments in redemptive history where God shows up and reveals himself in all his glory, such as Isaiah's experience that we read in the Old Testament reading. Similar stuff's happening here. The light of Shekinah glory surrounds him, forcing Saul to the ground. A commanding voice rebukes him, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul doesn't know who the voice belongs to, but he knows the voice is in charge. He says, who are you, Lord? I don't know who you are, but whoever you are, you are clearly my Lord. Jesus says, I am Jesus. You are persecuting. I love that. Jesus so identifies with his people that to persecute them is to persecute him. If you mess with them, you're messing with me. And then the proud, powerful, religious, celebrity Saul of Tarsus is struck blind, led by hand to Damascus, and for three days is left in the darkness of his own blindness, fasting from food and water, waiting to discover his new master's bidding. I've read the story countless times. But what was so striking to me this week as I studied it once again is just the commanding um, majesty and authority of Jesus that we see on display. One blinding sight one commanding sentence from the exalted risen Jesus and his adversary becomes his servant. Jesus says to the blinded Saul, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Meaning, I'm in charge now, Saul. You will be told what to do and you're going to do it. Now, why Jesus chose Saul, we will get to shortly. But once again, let's pause and appreciate the significance of this moment. Again, what are we to make of Saul's conversion? Historically speaking, it does not make sense. These stories don't happen. 
unless what we just read actually happened. Unless Jesus actually is risen from the dead, unless Jesus actually is Lord of all, unless Jesus actually did appear to his enemy, stop him in his persecuting tracks and demand that instead of persecuting him, he would henceforth be following him. That's how Saul tells the story. The easiest way to account for this, historically speaking, is to just let Saul speak for himself. One of the benefits of so much of his life and ministry and and writings being preserved and canonized is we get to let him tell the story. So, how does he account for this unlikely, one might even say impossible event? Galatians 1 He says there is no other reason for his story except that Jesus is risen, Jesus is true, Jesus did appear to him, and his life was never the same. End of story. Or beginning of the story. Because his life would never be the same, but nor would the world ever be the same. We've seen Saul's contention, Saul's conversion. Let's close by looking at his commission. Verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in vision, Ananias, he said, here "Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. He has seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he, has, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed into the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul... Don't miss that. Don't, don't, that's, that's a big moment. <laughs> he says to the persecutor, brother. In Christ, the enemy is now brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So, he's converted. Eyes are now open to a whole new reality, a reality that belongs to the Lord Jesus. He's baptized, receives the Holy Spirit, and taking food, he was strengthened. And he's going to need it. He's going to need his strength. Because look at the way Jesus speaks of Saul. When Ananias says, Lord, I've heard about the Saul guy. He's done so much evil towards your people, and you want me to welcome him? Then notice how Jesus explains what he's up to with Saul. This gets to the commission. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The juxtaposition there is intentional. It's very significant. The one who has inflicted so much suffering against the cause of Christ will now endure so much suffering for the cause of Christ. And this will be proven true. Again, let me allow Paul himself to share what those words from Jesus meant for him in his life. 
This is from 2 Corinthians 11. I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer for me. How much will I have to suffer for Christ? 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled. I have often gone gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, have often gone without food. I have been cold. I have been naked. That's a lot of suffering. And there was still more in store for him even after those words that he wrote, including his own martyrdom. But what I find so fascinating about Saul who's known as Paul more so at this point, is how he ends his section on suffering. So he goes through that litany of all that he's had to suffer because of Jesus, and this is how it ends. But besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now think about that statement. All that he has suffered through, the the beatings, imprisonment, stoning, shipwreck, starvation, the list goes on. But his greatest burden, his greatest concern on a daily basis, that which keeps him up at night, is the welfare of the church. This from the man who once sought to destroy the church. And so from this, the most unlikely of figures, the gospel of Jesus Christ explodes upon the world. Yes, through his success as a church planting missionary, but more significantly through his inspired writings that have become half of the New Testament canon. I was converted by words that this man wrote. My wife was converted by words that this man wrote. Many of you were converted by words that this man wrote. Millions and millions and millions and millions of saints throughout the centuries have been converted by words that this man wrote. All that we've gotten from his writings, justification by faith alone, the doctrine of the resurrection, all of it from Paul. Outside the Lord Jesus himself, this man is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity, and it all began as a conquered enemy on a Damascus road. But there is something we must remember in all of this, lest we read Paul's story in a way he would not want us to read it. It's possible to read this account in Acts as if Saul is being chosen as a helpless instrument to do the bidding of Jesus. As as if Saul in our passage becomes this kind of forced indentured servant that reluctantly has no choice but to suffer for his far more powerful master. Perhaps one even might read this story punitively as if to say, oh, I'll show you, Saul. You've been persecuting me. Well, now I'm going to make you spend the rest of your life suffering for me. Please understand that is a misreading of this story. This is not a pleasant experience for Saul, and the rest of his life would be even less pleasant. And yet Saul himself would say, this day is the greatest day of my life. Let me read from him again. This from Philippians 3. I myself have reason to boast. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Then he reads his resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he recounts his former resume that he had accumulated before the Damascus Road moment in our passage. And then he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. He lost money, he lost prestige, he lost influence, he lost family, he lost friends, you name it. He had it all, he had all the world had to offer, and then he lost it all. And he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish, literally in the Greek, refuse, in order that I might gain Jesus. Here is Paul's bottom line assessment of that day we read about in our passage. Despite everything I lost on that Damascus road, yet I rejoice because all that I lost is rubbish compared to gaining Jesus Christ. I would gladly give it all up. Just give me Jesus. In Paul's words, he would never get over his Jesus obsession. Every one of his epistles are unique in what they are addressing, but there is one thing that runs through them all. There's one thing that unites them all, Paul's obsession with Jesus Christ. His writings are the most Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, Christ-loving, Christ-proclaiming, Christ-applying, Christ-whatever, Christ-everything words that have ever been written. And so, I thought through, as I thought through application this week, I thought that is where the sermon should end. There are many ways to apply the passage. I understand this. Uh, there, there could be a word to those resisting Jesus, like Saul in our passage, saying, come discover what Saul discovered, that you lose everything but you gain Jesus. And of course that's true, and I would say that don't, if you're resisting Jesus, don't, 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 don't contend against Jesus. Give in to him. Like Saul, yes, that's true. There's a word to the complacent among us saying, come give your life away, suffer the loss of everything like Saul did for Jesus. There's so many applications, so many directions I could go, but do you know what I thought would be most appropriate? For us to close this sermon exactly how Paul would want us to close this sermon. When, when he himself recounts his story, his testimony, and his own words from his perspective in Galatians, and he tells the craziness of his journey, that testimony ends with these words, and they praised God because of me. That's how I want to end this. I want us to end this in praise. This passage is less about Saul and more about Saul's Lord that he encountered. And so what I think would please Paul, but who cares, more significantly would please Paul's Savior is for us to praise God because of him. And he has a praiseworthy story to tell. Let's praise Jesus together, shall we? Praise Jesus in his matchless glory and power who with a blinding light and a commanding sentence 
easily conquered the greatest enemy of the church and then used him for his own glory. Praise Jesus in his resurrection exaltation who proved himself to the unbelieving Saul, the skeptic Saul, that he is undeniably risen and true. Let it be known to everyone there is one Lord as Saul discovered that day. His name is Jesus. There is no other. Only Jesus. Praise Jesus for his prodigious forbearance who never gave up on Saul though he should have long ago, who said, despite your vile persecution of my people, despite your hatred of me and my gospel, I still have plans for you, which means it's just never too late for any and all sinners. Praise Jesus in his perfect, sovereign providence. What a story that he would choose the most unlikely, the one that the last person any of us would ever choose to become the perfect person to carry the name of Jesus to the world. Oh, how wise is the providence of Jesus, though we can't understand it, though we can't fathom it, though sometimes we disagree and rage against it. Every decision Jesus ever makes in the world and in our lives proves perfect in the end. Praise Jesus for his unrivaled goodness. So good is Jesus that Saul counts the day... In our passage, that he lost everything as the day he gained everything. (laughs) How good is this Savior? He praises, he blesses this day, not because his life would improve. In fact, it would only get worse, but because on that blessed day he gained Jesus, whose goodness overwhelms any and all losses. And most of all, praise Jesus for his matchless grace that remarkably one might even say scandalously, says to a hell-bound hater of God spewing venom and violence against Jesus that the same Jesus has died to forgive everything he has done. Is there any wonder, is there any wonder why Paul could not get past the gospel of free grace alone? Is there any wonder why Paul at the end of his life as an old mentor to Timothy, sums everything up with this. Just write this one down, Timothy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. That's it. Friends, praise Jesus with me. Give the Apostle Paul what he would want from our congregation, but more significantly, give the Lord of the Apostle Paul what he wants from us. Give Jesus your praise. Let me pray. We do indeed praise you, Jesus, and we confess that our stories are not as dramatic as Saul's, but we are the same, enemies of God that you have rescued and have chosen to use, and we praise you, Jesus. Would you, through your sacrament now that does proclaim this news to our hearts, would you fill us with the praise that you deserve? Through Christ alone we pray. Amen.